This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. And it is now my great honor to introduce the President-elect of the United States of America, Joe Biden. On Saturday, November 7th, several news networks projected that former Vice President Joe Biden will become the 46th President of the United States. That could have a profound impact on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the securities regulatory landscape. We'll talk about what a Biden administration could mean today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to this special Election 2020 episode of the Insecurities Podcast helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. As Kurt noted up top, on Saturday, most major news networks have projected Vice President Joe Biden will eclipse the 270 electoral votes necessary to win the presidential election, with projected victories in Pennsylvania and Nevada appearing to tip the scales. As of the afternoon of Monday, November 9th, when we're taping this episode, the Washington Post projects Joe Biden to win at least 279 electoral votes, while outlets like the AP and Fox News, having called Arizona for Biden on Election Day, are projecting at least 290 electoral votes for the vice president. Things are obviously in flux here, Kurt. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. And we do want to note here at the top that President Trump or the Trump campaign have commenced or are reportedly planning to commence legal challenges in several states relating to the election. We're not taking a view on the merits of those challenges other than to say that few commentators seem to believe that those challenges are likely to change the outcome of the election. And for purposes of this episode, we will operate under the assumption that the putative president-elect Joe Biden will, in fact, become President Joe Biden in January. With that, we want to spend a little bit of time and give some of our preliminary takes on what we think a Biden administration could mean for the SEC and the securities regulatory world. We're going to talk a little bit about who will make up the five-person commission at the SEC. We'll identify some potential programmatic shifts from the Trump administration, think about how the rulemaking landscape might change, and finally, we'll focus on the division of enforcement. Kurt, let's start with the commission itself, the five presidentially appointed commissioners who oversee the Securities and Exchange Commission. Anytime there's a change in administration, particularly if power shifts from one party to the other, there are changes in the makeup of the commission. What are your thoughts on what kind of changes we might see in the makeup of the commission in the months ahead? Yeah, it's a good question, Chris. And I think there are uh, there are probably more questions than answers in this space. I, I've been kicking this around with a lot of people, and I know a lot of folks are curious to see what the commission is going to look like. I, I will say one thing is certain. In a Biden administration, the power dynamic will shift, and we will see a Democratic majority or Democratic-leaning majority 
among the five commissioners. By statute, you can have no more than three commissioners with the same party affiliation. And often, as is the case with Jay Clayton, the chairperson is identified as an independent. Although, again, as is the case with Jay Clayton, the chair tends to vote with the commissioners who are aligned with the person who sits in the White House. So as such, in a Biden administration, we should expect to see a 3-2 split favoring Democrats. Past that, I, I would say there are a couple questions that, uh, that I'm hearing a lot or that I've been thinking about personally. Uh, again, I don't really have the answers to these, but I would put them in two buckets. And one is the, the near term or the immediate term future of the commission. And the second question relates to the longer term commission makeup. And, and there's something like this. One, when will Chairman Clayton step down? And if it's before Inauguration Day in January, who will stand in as the interim chair? And the second question is, who will Biden appoint to succeed Chairman Clayton? Again, I don't have the answers to, to those questions. You know, particularly the second one, I think, is, is difficult. If I stick with number one, you know, when might Chairman Clayton leave? Uh, it's either before or, or after inauguration. And if it's before, I think most people believe that uh, Commissioner Peirce would stand in as the interim chair for whatever period of time there is before inauguration day. Otherwise, I think we'll go through a more normal process where we'd come we'd come through the inauguration and there would be a transition into a new appointed chairperson. And you know that that I think is where there's a big question. And uh, to some extent, it may depend on the runoffs that we're going to have in Georgia in January. Uh, my own personal view is that you might get a different chairperson out of a Senate where there is a Democratic majority than you would get out of a Senate where there's a Republican majority. Time will tell on that. I know there are a number of uh, sort of old line Democrats in and around D.C. that are rooting hard for uh, former Commissioner Rob Jackson to come back in that role. Some folks, I think, would love to see a former Commissioner Kara Stein in that role. I don't have any uh, inside information to, to share. We really will just have to wait and see how it plays out. And I think, Kurt, just to clarify, you, you talked a bit about the Senate's role in this process, and that's more just from a general political posture, right? Instead of, you know, the, the senators actually having more of a, a say in who would get appointed. It's, it's about the confirmation more so than uh, than any individual selection. Yeah, it is about the confirmation. I mean, it's also about the appointment potentially. Again, it's things are a little bit funny here. You know, for example, we've found out over the weekend that President-elect Biden's transition team will include Gary Gensler, who was a former um, chairman of the CFTC, and he will be helping the transition team fill roles at the CFTC and the SEC um, and one or two other regulatory agencies. You know, it could be the case. Um, that, that they're going to find a potential nominee that we've never heard about before. In the ordinary course, though, you know these these nominations often sort of come through the the Senate, the senators or their staff, and so you can imagine, uh, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren having sort of a, a favorite son or daughter that they would like to to place on the commission. I, I just think that the balance of the Senate really, I think, will impact the nominee that comes out, just in terms of just sheer political trajectory. Can you get the votes? Yeah. And I think one other important thing to note is the similarities we see in the current landscape of market regulation and enforcement and, and economic uh, standing, uh, as we can think back to, to an election, what, 12 years ago, in which President Barack Obama was elected in the midst of the financial crisis. Uh, so at least my personal feeling is that we'll, 
will probably lean on you know someone with significant amount of experience in the issues facing the economy today, obviously pandemic related as well as generally. But also, Kurt, I seem to recall that some of the SEC commissioners uh, might have stayed on a little bit longer than than expected back in the 2008 period. Is, is that accurate? In theory, you can stay as long as your term. Um, you know, so for example, right now, Commissioner Purse, she was just reconfirmed for a term that's going to go for several more years. And I, mean, I don't know, I can't imagine that she's planning to leave. I, I certainly haven't mm-hmm. heard anything to that effect. In theory, Chairman Clayton's term runs through June 2021. I believe, but it really is the practice for the chairperson to to step down when a, when a new president comes in, and, and I think everyone would expect that he will do so either around the inauguration or before the inauguration. Got it. Enough about the people, Kurt. What do we think is going to change or, or be updated or, or maybe shift from the programmatic perspective? Uh, are we going to see new regulatory priorities from the commission with the Biden administration? I think we could. I think what we're likely to see in the near term, I mean, you know, a four year term is a long time and you could potentially do a lot in in that time. Um, I I think certainly Chairman Clayton has has done a lot during his four years. And and some of the things that we've been talking about over the last 18 months or two years are certainly not the things we're talking about. Um, when when he was going through the confirmation process. So I think in the near term, in terms of what is programmatically important to the SEC or where might we see some shifts, really center around some things that we're talking about already. And so for me, um, the, you know, the top things on my list when I think about it are, I, I really think we're talking an awful lot more about ESG lately. Um, and, and what will that mean? Should there be mandatory disclosures relating to ESG. Can we make them uh, sort of systematic in some way? Or, or is this something that that really we should just leave to issuers to disclose if, if they want to, or fund managers to disclose if they want to? You know, I think right now that issue is um, pretty starkly divided along political lines. So it'll be interesting to see what would happen in a, in a commission, uh, you know, with appointees that come out of a Biden administration. The second thing that I'm thinking a lot about is uh, cryptocurrencies or digital assets. And again, it's another one where we see a little bit of push and pull among the current commissioners in terms of, you know, to to what extent do we think this ought to be a highly regulated space? To what extent do we want to kind of let the the capital markets or the free market figure it out to foster innovation and just sort of see where it goes within the confines that exist currently. And, you know, we've talked about this on several past episodes, um, but right now we very much think about cryptocurrencies it, within the framework of the Howey test. Is it a security? And, and if not, it just sort of, it, it's beyond the SEC's mandate. But I think there are some things that the SEC might do around digital assets to, I don't know, make regular um, the way that they trade or disclosures about them. Um, to maybe make clear which are securities and which aren't securities. So another space that'll be interesting to follow, private markets. We we talk a lot about private markets. We hear about it all the time. You know, there have been uh, pretty persistent efforts during Jay Clayton's tenure as chairman to open up the private markets to more investors and, and more recently to retail investors potentially. And, you know, I know that uh, Commissioners Lee and Crenshaw really don't seem to be fans of of those efforts. And I wonder if there would be a tightening, you know, sort of a, a little bit of an, an undoing, if you will, uh, in terms of the way that those markets have opened up over the past you know, year or 18 months. You know, I think that they would prefer 
to make the public markets more lit uh, and more accessible to retail investors before we start encouraging folks to dive into private markets. And then, you know, the, the last thing that I wonder about, and I'm not sure how much I actually wonder about this, Chris, and how much I just am going to say it to bother you, uh, but I wonder about the future of Reg BI. <laughs> oh, that thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or, or if just this concept of what should be the, the duty of care that a broker dealer owes customers versus an investment advisor. Are we going to revisit that? There's already been some uh, some saber rattling at the DOL and other places, you know, the states uh, about about whether something needs to be done about that. I wonder if it's something that the SEC will think about again. I don't know. Th- those are my those are my four: um, ESG, cryptocurrencies, private markets, and duty of care. Chris, how did that strike you? I always think of this as where's the spotlight going to go? You know, the commission's not going to abandon its recent focus on protecting and, and empowering retail investors. Uh, I think they're they're far down that road and, and will continue to go that way. But the emphasis may shift from, it, like you said, opening up private markets more so to, you know, allow cryptocurrencies to be an avenue by which retail mm-hmm. investors gain more ability or, or more understanding. I look at the leadership of the commission as really taking charge in, in those individual efforts. And we often joke about the the godmother of cryptocurrency with Commissioner Purse, right? And you could imagine, Kurt, if, if things play out the way we, we hypothesize that maybe she would take over as chairperson, that would lead to more focus on cryptocurrency and, and digital assets than not. But, you know, it really is anyone's guess with, with how the commission will be staffed and assuming a, a Biden administration moves forward. And then secondarily, what those kind of spotlight focuses might be for the next iteration of the commission. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Well, let me get your take on something else here. We're coming off of an episode where we talked all about accounting fraud and disclosure issues. So let's think about accounting again. Should we expect any major changes in accounting standards or interpretations? Should we expect for there to be changes at the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which, quick plug, we talked about on episode 17? What, what are you expecting there, Chris? Yeah, I know you'll be shocked to hear it, Kurt, but accountants are not ones for fast change. So although the political tides may be shifting right now, you know, the accounting standards and interpretations are are set by an independent body uh, called the Financial Accounting Standards Board. And the FASB is a nonprofit function of the accounting profession generally managed by the Financial Accounting Foundation up in Norwalk, Connecticut. So although the SEC enforces and evaluates the rules promulgated by the FASB, there isn't any direct interaction between the commissioners and their staff Mm -hmm. and actual rulemaking from an accounting perspective. So long story short is I don't see any change in commissioner immediately impacting the way that companies and, and issuers and broker dealers are uh, you know, working towards uh, their goals and their objectives. And, you know, from a logical perspective, it wouldn't make a lot of sense from a comparability view to have all of the administrative and, and financial reporting and disclosure work being substantially completed for the year ended 2020, and then immediately in January, change all the rules for the following year. So we'll see some general shifts in, in policy and thought coming out of the commission that may impact conversations and evaluations at the FASB, but I don't see any rules getting implemented or, or significantly changed in the short term. But you do bring up an interesting point with the PCAOB. You know, as we discussed, the PCAOB, unlike the FASB, is actually under the umbrella of the SEC. And the SEC makes specific decisions about the folks serving on that board, as well as their activities and focus. So we talked a bit in episode 17 about the PCAOB to be dissolved and become back a part of the SEC at large and didn't really get it to a conclusion with our guests on that episode. Uh, they were a, little bit, <laughs> a little bit timid in their crystal balls yeah, uh, yeah. where we go. 
So I know there was a, a significant amount of discussion um, when President Trump was elected and, and the newly appointed board of the PCAOB was brought in uh, regarding that 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 board's um, experience in the audit space. You know, traditionally the PCAOB has been staffed by uh, career auditors at, at large accounting firms who've served in this role on the front lines for the majority of their career. The current board's makeup is a little bit less experienced as serving as mm-hmm. actual. Uh, public company auditors. So you may see a shift with the Biden administration towards uh, populating the board with those that have uh, significant experience in the audit space compared to where the board is now. There hasn't been a significant amount of that kind of normal turnover around the election for the PCOB in, in the history. You know, we talk a little bit about how it's customary for the chairperson to be of the SEC, to be of the same party, or at least uh, leaning on uh, the same thought as, as the sitting president. The PCOB has not turned over at the election stages as regularly as that. So we're still kind of in a waiting area. And also, you know, the PCOB is relatively young in the regulatory landscape, having just been instilled after the 2002 uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So we're still within the first two decades of its existence and only a couple changes in administration. So it's hard to tell generally what will happen with the PCAOB, mm-hmm. um, depending on how focused, you know, by an administration might be in there. One other element to layer on here from the PCOB perspective is that, you know, it's widely reported that Vice President Biden, while serving as vice president, played a significant role in the Obama team's um, memorandum of understanding uh, agreement with with China. For those of you who follow these issues closely, and, and I know some of our listeners do, uh, you know, there's been a significant push for the publicly traded companies, issuers and broker dealers here in the U.S. with operations in China to get more clarity into the books and records of the Chinese enterprise. There was some pushback from the Chinese government generally about what the U.S. government should be allowed to review and not review. In 2013, again, that MOU, that Memorandum of Understanding, was signed between China and the U.S. at Vice President Biden's encouragement. And we're seeing, in, obviously, in recent months that China is alleged to not be following that Memorandum of Understanding any longer. And, and current President Trump has railed against them on Twitter about that issue. So that'll really be kind of the first litmus test for for what the PCOB might do in the months to come. Knowing that Vice President Biden played a very close role in that back in 2013 is interesting. But again, I don't know if there's any specific focus on that during the transition or in the early months of 2021. Kurt, I could I could wax poetic on accounting and PCOB issues uh, you know, for the rest of this episode, but you know, want to hear a little bit about the rulemaking space, uh, you know, from the security side. That's obviously a focus of of our talks about the commission going forward in, in a variety of ways. How do you see rulemaking being impacted by the Biden administration? You know, I think it's going to be interesting. We, we've talked a couple of times on the podcast about just the sheer volume of uh, proposed rulemakings or amendments that have come out of Chairman Clayton's SEC over the last couple of years. It really has been remarkable the number of rules or proposed rules that we see coming through. So, you know, I think the first question is, will they keep that pace uh, in a Biden administration? I think there are also questions about some of the proposed rulemakings or amendments that are still uh, that are still live at the SEC, you know, where a proposal has come out and may still be in a comment period or where the comment period has closed, but the SEC has not yet promulgated a final rule for the vote of the full commission. And, you know, just to name a couple that are still up in the air, we have a rulemaking proposal that came out this summer that relates to the good faith determinations of fair value for funds uh, or buy funds. Um, We have the advertising rule, which has been out um, for for months now. I think it came out in the end of last November. Uh, It's gone through a comment period and 
we still haven't seen a final rule. I mean, even, you know, Chris, we've talked about uh, some uh, some of the market plumbing or market structure issues on the podcast before. There are a couple pending rulemakings that relate to Reg ATS and Reg NMS that could sort of change the way that our markets uh, function, or at least for certain market participants. So there are a number of very interesting rulemakings floating out there. And if they are not finalized before Biden is inaugurated, assuming that happens, I don't know what's going to happen to them. <laughs> I don't know if that means they are taken off the table. Uh, if they, you know, get a get a hard look from a a new look commission, and the final rule comes out looking pretty different than what we thought it might. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I seem to recall when we were talking about the advertising rule that that has not been updated recently either. Am I recalling yeah. that correctly, Kurt? It's been yeah. uh, what sixty years or so since that's been a. Change. Absolutely. Yeah. And this has been a theme um, with with Jay Clayton's commission is sort of updating these rules that he, you know, he would describe as, as outdated. You know, it's not been uncommon to see SEC press releases that say, you know, SEC rulemaking would modernize X, Y, Z. You know, I'm sure there's still some room for that. But, I, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the thing on which a Biden SEC will focus. Right. Are they are they going to go around and look for rules that need updating? You know, one of the features of the many rules that have been quote modernized is a, a shift to what the SEC has called principles based rules. And so I think what we've grown accustomed to over the years are fairly prescriptive rules that, you know, they tell you what to do. If you're an issuer, if you're a compliance person or in-house counsel, you have a pretty good idea of, you know, specifically what is the rule, you know, in the advertising space between the rule and various no action letters and other guidance, you've got a pretty good idea of, you know, when you need to put a legend on marketing material and what that legend ought to say, you know, in, in the context of the advertising rule, it's unclear, you know, what's going to happen, which is what are that guidance is going to go away, which of the no action letters are going to go away. And instead, they're proposing to impose this principles based system that has caused a lot of compliance folks, a lot of sleepless nights since the rule came out, because they're not quite sure how to work within that system. So I don't know if Again, thinking what, what's going to happen with the rules that are that are currently on the table and haven't been finalized, are those going to trend away from principles-based rules? And what will rulemakings in entirely new spaces that we haven't even seen yet look like? Are we going to you know stick with principles-based rules? I'm not sure. So I, I mean, look, rulemaking sounds pretty boring to the layperson. That's sort of where the sausage is made, and it's going to be interesting to see what the rules look like in the next commission. Well, on a more exciting note, and maybe where the sausage gets served, Kurt, uh, what can we see in the short term from from our friends in the enforcement division? You know, their annual report is just published uh, last week. We'll be talking about it in a future episode. But are you seeing some shifting tides in the enforcement? Uh, should the Biden administration you know, get set in January and, and set up shop? The conventional wisdom is that when you have a Democrat in the White House, you have substantially more enforcement activity at the SEC and, frankly, other other regulatory agencies around D.C. and around the country. Republican administrations are often associated with fewer prosecutions, fewer enforcement actions. You know, it's been an interesting few years because on on some level, that hasn't really proven to be the case. I think last year or two years ago, uh, so I, I think it was actually fiscal 18, the SEC recorded the highest ever number of enforcement actions. 
this year, and again, we're going to talk about this soon, they recorded the highest amount of penalties and disgorgement ever ordered in SEC enforcement actions. So it hasn't been the enforcement light division that many anticipated. Again, if we're thinking back to, to Jay Clayton's confirmation process, confirmation hearing, um, we haven't really seen that. That said, the numbers have been buoyed substantially by a couple of sweeps, a couple of self-reporting initiatives that brought in hundreds of cases and resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and disgorgement that we just might not have seen. We've also seen just you know wave after wave of enforcement action against you know smaller investment advisory firms and broker dealers, which is consistent with this commission's you know laser-like focus on protecting retail investors. But not just the large volume of big cases against big companies or issuers that I think we expect in in a democratic administration. So it will be interesting to see what happens. You know, the number one question people ask when we're thinking about enforcement is like, are the numbers going to spike? Is it going to go back up? Is this going to be, you know, a typical democratic administration when we think about enforcement? And, you know, the answer is, you know, it's really hard to say And part of that is because we just have sort of maintained this pretty high level (laughs) in terms of sheer numbers. And I know nobody wants us to talk about numbers, but that is the most objective thing I can point to, to say, like, how busy are they and what should what should we expect? Kurt, as as an accountant, I want you to talk about the numbers. So thank Thank you. you Thank you. But we'll see. I mean, the, the other thing we don't yet know is what sort of resources will be allocated to the SEC broadly and the enforcement division in particular? Because I think one of the things that they have done really, really well is do a lot with less than they had during the Obama administration. And whether that is through data analytics tools or some of the uh, the offices that they've opened or some of the initiatives that they've commenced, the staff have done tremendously well with fewer bodies and fewer resources than they had a number of years ago. You know, if all of a sudden we're hiring more people into the SEC and into the Division of Enforcement, if they have more money and more or better technology, I mean, you can imagine that we're going to start seeing more and higher quality cases than we've seen over the past several years. And the last point I'll make about the Division of Enforcement is sort of where we started this whole conversation. And, and it's a question about who who's going to be in charge. You know, I have no no reason to believe that the current director, Stephanie Avakian, is going anywhere. But she's mm-hmm. been there for a while. And it's not uncommon to see some new blood in a new administration. So, I mean, again, I have no idea what her thoughts are. Um, but if it's if it's no longer director Avakian... Um, whoever the director is will matter in terms of the things that the division is going to focus on. Um, how how are they going to organize? Uh, are they going to reorganize into into new units or teams? So these are these are the things that I'm thinking about and focusing on, and, and we'll be uh, you know hoping to see how they start to take shape in the coming months. Yeah, and one of the things that I was reading about over the weekend from an enforcement perspective, again, is that shifting spotlight of focus. And there's a criticism about the current enforcement division for its uh, lack of bringing of insider trading cases uh, in the relevant range compared to the prior administration and the prior SEC. Now, you know, one can make the argument that that is a worthwhile use of time or not. Uh, Insider trading, as we've talked about on previous episodes, is a a pretty wonky issue that can be hard to prove and hard to bring cases on. And it appears just from a reporting metrics perspective that the current division of enforcement has put less focus on those issues while obviously meeting the stats and, and the disgorgement penalties that you talked about uh, in other areas. So 
you can criticize each commission and each division of enforcement uh, for its focuses and the efforts that they leave behind. But in, in each case, they're looking directly at the issues that they feel best meet the needs of the commission and its iteration. So I'll be interested to see how uh, fiscal 21 compares to fiscal 20 with some of the changes that uh, might occur both at the division of enforcement level as well as the top of the commission itself. Yeah, I will say this. Here's an early, early prediction and come back and check me later. But I would be surprised if in fiscal 21, we find that the SEC has brought considerably more cases or that they have obtained orders for considerably more civil penalties or disgorgement because you you know you're going to have a half a year that's sort of in in the end of the Trump administration during a pandemic and then you're going to have a half a year that is at least likely to be impacted for the first part by the pandemic and then you've got whatever transition comes with new with new staff and potentially new philosophies um, mm-hmm. at the commission and within the division typically you don't see really impressive numbers, big upticks in the first year uh, in a new administration or the first half year um, because of how the SEC's fiscal year goes. So, you know, early prediction, don't look for big numbers next fall out of the SEC's division of enforcement. I'm excited that you've put that stake in the ground, Kurt, for us to come back and revisit uh, in a future episode. So that's great. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Trout and Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.